Koutou. Um, good to see you all tonight um, in this um, strange spaced out configuration. Um, I was just thinking before with passing the piece, um, like how powerful that can actually be, what you suggested we do of texting that out. Um, I have a friend um, who is kind of, he hangs out a lot at the pub in Patoni, um, and he runs a local, um, a local quiz there. Uh, but uh, one of the things he's taken to doing is every time they pass the piece on Sundays, he texts a bunch of the people who come to quiz. Um, and if he forgets to now, they say, bro, I didn't get your piece. Um, and it's become this cool kind of little, like, almost evangel evangelical ev evangelism sort of thing for him of just passing the piece. It's that funny thing, eh? Like, I don't actually meet many people who you say to them, like, hey, um, I'll be praying for you, and they feel deeply offended by that. They might find it really weird, but um, most people are pretty happy for you to, um, to go away, go home, and be praying for them or thinking of them or happy for you to be sending peaceful vibes in their general direction. Um, so just, just thought of that um, before. Um, but the, the passage I want to have a look at today is from Mark 5, 21 to 43. So if you've got your Bibles or your cellular devices with you, um, this is where we are today. Um, and I sometimes find it helpful when I hear a passage of scripture to close my eyes um, and um, just helps me to kind of, I try to imagine the dirt or the temperature or the dust or all the things that might be in that space so it becomes less like a story that happened years ago um, and more like something I'm encountering now. Um, and so feel free to close your eyes if you'd like. Mark 5, 21 to 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and, lived and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse and worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who, who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly, he went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? This child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said, 
Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So what happens here? Um, it begins with Jesus. He pulls up on the shore and, along, and comes to him the synagogue leader named Jairus. And Jairus says, my daughter is dying. You need to come and save her. Please come. My daughter is on death's door. I believe, teacher, that if you come, she could be made well. And so Jesus says, yep, I'll come with you. They head off, but along the way, they end up in this massive pressing crowd. And within this pressing crowd, they can barely move. A woman crawls along the dust, reaches out for the hem of Jesus' garment. She's a woman who has had menstrual bleeding for 12 years. She grabs the hem of his garment. Power goes out from Christ, and she is healed. He asks, who, who touched me? And of course, everyone says, this is ridiculous. <laughs> like, there are so many people here. In the end, he finds out who has touched him, and he says to her daughter, your faith has healed you. But by this point, through comes the news from Jairus' friends that while they have been in the crowd, Jairus' daughter has passed away. And so they, they head there, and they arrive at this morning scene. If you can imagine this house, and it is full of people wailing and screaming and crying because this 12-year-old girl has passed away. And Jesus says to them, she's not dead, she's sleeping. He gathers three of the disciples. He gathers um, Jairus and his wife. They head in. He lays hands on the girl. He says, rise, and she stands again and is alive. So there's a lot that could be said in this passage. I reckon I've probably preached on this passage like a dozen times, I reckon. And we could talk about healing today, which I super believe in healing. Like I've seen a bunch of healing. Um, I, I so think that God's Holy Spirit comes and miraculously heals pre people. There are people in this room, actually, who can speak to that. Jarden can speak to that this year. Um, there, have been, there are amazing things that happen, but healing is not what I want to talk about today. Another thing we could talk about here is how God's speed is not ours, um, is this, this whole thing that so often, like, I feel the urgency of that situation. Please come and save my daughter, and Jesus sort of seems to take his time um, and doesn't seem to have the same kind of urgency that maybe all of us would have. Um, but I don't want to talk about that. Um, and then, then there's another thing which I think is really powerful and a huge thing which we could do 40 sermons on, which is the line, your faith has healed you. <sighs> All right, we'll leave that one for today too as well. But what I, I felt to bring today instead um, is well, I think in this passage there are three corrections to common misconceptions we have about what it is to follow God. Three corrections to common misconceptions we have about how to follow God. Um, and it's really good how every passage that you get given in the lectionary has a natural three points in it, I find. Um, so we're going to start in verse number 22, and it goes like this. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. So something we should notice right away is that Jairus was a synagogue leader. That thing there is important. The synagogue where the synagogue leader, that's important. Mark has a really fractious relationship with the synagogue and the religious institution. Um, interestingly, um, something I find fascinating about Mark um, is that uh, Mark has these stories of Jesus driving out demons, right? Now, the first demon that Jesus drives out in the book of Mark, in Mark 121, 
It's not a demon out of a man into a herd of pigs. It's not a demon out of a demon-possessed girl. It's a demon out of a guy at church, in the synagogue. The first place that Mark cleanses an impure spirit, as it's called in this passage, is in the religious temple. That's a pretty powerful way. I find that kind of interesting, and that would have been super challenging for those reading this gospel. Mark surprises the, the readers by showing them that the first demon to be cast out, the first impure spirit that needs to be dealt with is the one that lives in the house of God. Uh-oh. It's not good, eh? And then here in Mark 5, he surprises again because the young, the young girl suffering in this passage is not some normal young girl. She's the daughter of one of the religious leaders of the synagogue. So already we're in the first five chapters, we have a demon that had to be driven out of the synagogue, and then the girl who needs healing is the daughter of the guy who runs the place. The synagogue's not looking so good here. The church is, is not in health at this point. It's almost like Mark is showing us that the same things the world struggles with are also the same things that sometimes the church struggles with. Sickness, death, conflict, fear, struggle, both those in the synagogue and those on the streets have similar experiences of what it is to be human. Both of them, the same. Continuing in this passage, Mark further blurs the lines between the synagogue or the church and the world. We might note a bunch of the parallels in this passage. So we have, um, we have the woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, and then how old is the daughter? 12 years old. Um, and then we have um, when Jesus, uh, when the healing happens to the woman who has been bleeding, Jesus says to her um, in verse 33, um, he says, my daughter, your, my, your faith has healed you, which Jairus says the same words, says my daughter, to his daughter as well. So there is a clear parallel being drawn here by Mark. Part of Mark's agenda here is that the dying daughter in the synagogue is just the same as the bleeding woman in the streets. That the one who goes to church, the one who goes to synagogue, <laughs> has all the same challenges as the one um, who is out on the streets. The human condition of sin and sickness is something we all experience. So for Jesus, gone is the idea that the house of God is clean and the streets are dirty. Instead, both are full of humanity and both need God's grace. Um, a little while ago, um, some of you will know that um, eight months ago, I had a little daughter who is perfect, um, <laughs> and her name is Luna, um, but um, often I run out of time when I'm looking after Luna, um, so um, I get in trouble around my house because I don't wipe the benches or I leave baby food places, um, and, um, but anyway, this one particular day, I'd rushed out the door um, to, to host a Eucharist, which I host at St. Peter's at 6.30 on a Wednesday, um, and I'd got down there and I had my priest shirt on, which I never normally wear, um, and I was putting my collar in, and I put the stole around my neck, and I was preparing. And then I saw this tiny little speck on my neck, and I went to flick it off, and it smeared. And I realized, oh my gosh, I have Luna's poo on my priest collar. <laughs> and it was like this moment of like, oh, um... This moment of like, okay, well, is there another shirt around here? There's not. No, I guess I'm going to have to take the Eucharist in my priest collar with my daughter's poo on my collar. <laughs> now, I think we have this particular idea in our world that there is the sacred and the profane, or there are these spaces that should be, that should be kept one way and some that should be kept another. But the reality of our lives is that they're much like that, eh? is that we try to step into these sacred spaces. Like, you come into this place tonight, and you might be putting on your best church face, <laughs> But you arrive here, and in reality, there's probably some kind of shit on your collar, right? 
There's some kind of shit on your collar tonight, and you'd like it to just flick off or to wipe off, but we come in here with the same humanity that everybody else in the world experiences too. The ones in the synagogue are every bit in need of grace as the ones on the streets. I think some of us think the way the church shows Jesus to the world is by having a better life than everybody else. Like if we can just have a better life than everybody else, if we can be happier than everybody else, if we can just be like more amped up than everybody else, then people will know that we are Christ's followers. But the reality is that sometimes being a Christian is not a better life. Because it's actually not a better life sometimes. Sometimes our daughters get sick. Sometimes our relationships break down. Sometimes we don't love each other like we should. And we are not immune to the effects of being human, are we? Not at all. So if our witness to the world is not to be more perfect than the world or to have it together more than the world, then what is it? Here's what I think. Our witness is not that we are perfect, but that we have had our eyes opened to perfect love. Our witness is not that we are perfect, but that we have had our eyes opened to perfect love. And everyone can have their eyes opened to perfect love. That's not just for the synagogue, that's for the streets, eh? That everyone can have their eyes open to perfect love. So correction number one, or point number one from from Mark 5. To follow God is not to become perfect. It is to have our lives healed and transformed by perfect love. To follow God is not to become perfect. It is to have our lives healed and transformed by perfect love. And whether you're on the street or in the synagogue, that is available to all of us. Second part of this passage. The Jewish faith was huge on these ideas of cleanness and uncleanness. Really, really big deal. There were certain rules about every facet of life that had come come from the Torah. How to eat, how to wash, how to stay healthy, how to work, how to resolve conflict, how to be in a relationship. And for many of these things, if you were to break these specific rules or laws, that would make you unclean. Um, There was something would need to be done to make you clean again. And this uncleanness, um, by the time of this passage here uh, of Mark 5, was no longer just about religion or belief, um, but it had big consequences for your day-to-day life if you were perceived to be unclean. So one of the rules um, that came from the Torah um, was that when women were menstruating, they left the camp for a little while and they couldn't touch anybody. Um, and, and this sounds really archaic. I think actually a good way for us to look at, I mean it is archaic, <laughs> but a good way for us to look at this, um, yeah, <laughs> um, a good way for us I think to sometimes look at the laws of, um, of, of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, um, is to think of them in terms of a lockdown. Like, I actually feel like this has been a gift to us in understanding some of the Old Testament law, is the things that a nation does to keep everybody safe. Um, And often we are looking at these things and going, oh my gosh, I can't believe they'd do that. But we need to imagine a nation of people um, who had no health care, who were out in a hot, stinking desert with not much to eat, and how they were going to stay hygienic and clean and not die. (laughs) And so some pretty um, full-on things come from this. Um, So a lot of these things were about were about spreading disease. So there was the one about women who were bleeding, but there was also the same for um, leprosy, which essentially was people with skin diseases that they didn't want to spread, that they would have to leave the camp for a little while until they could be healed. The problem with this is that um, when these things weren't healed, those people never came back into the camp. So they were sick people who were marginalised and ostracised from their community, 
as well. So the woman in Mark 5 who had been bleeding for 12 years was likely a social outcast because no one could touch her and no one could be near her. No one could come near to this woman. She would not have been able to work or to have a family, um, so she's totally destitute, um, and she would have been absolutely lonely and discarded. So one thing briefly I'll say around healing um, is I think sometimes in the church we can think of healing purely in a spiritual or a miraculous sense, but when Jesus heals her, he doesn't just heal her spiritually, he heals her socially, physically, and he puts her whole life back together again. So what he does for this woman is not just that she stops bleeding, but that she can have friends again. And she can have a community again. And she can belong again. Um, it's interesting, eh, that every great revival has normally had an aspect of social justice alongside it. So the Azusa Street revival, which the Pentes love talking about from, you know, the early 1900s, was one of the first integrated churches in the States. So healing must always be not just a physical healing, but a spiritual and a social healing too. So if we want to offer healing to our city, then we'd better be willing to offer them a dinner table to sit at in the evening as well, eh? Anyway, that's not in my sermon, but... Um, <laughs> now, so there are all these rules, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and here's a couple that are relevant to our passage from Mark 5. Leviticus 15, 19. When a woman has her regular flow of blood, anyone who touches her will be unclean until evening. And then we have Numbers 19.11, whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean. So we have these two laws here. Menstrual blood makes one unclean. Don't touch someone who's menstruating. This is definitely the most menstruating's ever been said in a sermon, eh? Like, surely. Um, and secondly, death makes one unclean. Don't touch someone who is dead. So what does Jesus do here? Well, in 20 verses, he breaks both of these. He breaks both of them. In 20 verses of Mark, the Son of God is made unclean twice. I love it. The one who is meant to be pristine and perfect is made ceremonial unclean. Not once, but twice. He's in a crowd. He's made unclean by this woman touching him. And then he walks straight to a tomb and touch a, touches a corpse. It's almost like he doesn't care, eh? It's almost like he's trying to piss people off at this point. Um, so... There is this, this thing going on here where Mark has started off in this passage by showing that it is the synagogue that needs cleaning as much as anywhere else, and then Jesus wanders into these spaces and becomes filthy in the eyes of society. I reckon it's so good. I remember a few years ago when I was about 19 or 20, um, I, got, I, I was on the edge of whether I'd have a faith or not. Um, I was so, so, so sick of the church. <laughs> Just so sick. Anyone want an amen on that one? Yeah. Um, like some of us have been sick of the church, right? I was so sick of it. I was like, if I have to turn up to another meeting and if I have to rearrange another piece of furniture, I swear I will become Buddhist. <laughs> like, I'm right on the edge. Um, and, um, and so I remember I hadn't been going along to church for a while and I got invited to volunteer at this youth centre called Zeal. And around this time I was saying, Jesus, I just need a new Jesus. Like, if, if you, if this is it, then I'm not in. But Jesus, I need a new Jesus. I need a new angle on you. And I, I think in, within, I'd, I'd come from Pente Roots, and I was really hoping to recover something of that enthusiasm or that fire in my belly that I'd experienced at these youth rallies. And I can remember this, this one night, we were outside in the park, um, and we were looking after these drunk kids, and there was this, um, this young girl, um, and she was 
drunk out of her mind and we had water and we had white bread which was the like classic combo to try and sober somebody up um and we're holding her there um and it's just like we're getting nowhere and she's really abusive um and then she just looks up at me and i i she looks in my eyes and i have this moment of feeling that same holy spirit thing i'd felt in all those pentecostal youth rallies all of a sudden and then she just vomited all over me like all over me and it was an awakening to me because i'd had an idea in my head of where the spirit of god would move and where the spirit of god wouldn't and in my mind that was bible studies and in my mind that was church services but god was showing me that it was in the grubby unclean spaces of getting vomited down your front that actually just as the bleeding woman came and made him unclean, that a deeper walking with Jesus for me would be willing to be made unclean by the people that he loved. And this is what we're called to, people. This is what we're called to. There's a lot of talk at the moment about how we heal a broken world. How do we do racial reconciliation? How do we listen to victims of abuse? How do we undo systemic oppression? And loosely, I think we've kind of broken this down into like a, a couple of different ideas of care. And one of them is sympathy. And we hate sympathy. Um, sympathy is us, oh, thoughts and prayers, bro. Thoughts and prayers. I feel for you. I'll change my Facebook image. Um, I don't know you. I don't really want to. You kind of gross me out, but I feel for you. Um, we've gone, we don't want the thoughts and prayers stuff. But what we've moved to recently, and um, the really popular buzzword that's not sympathy is empathy. And so you have corporations calling themselves empathy and making empathy a value. And everybody's saying, we just need to do empathetic listening, people. You know, it's about empathy. And you have logos of empathy. And then you have um, Instagram images with, with pine trees with something about empathy on them. <laughs> And empathy is a seeking to understand. But man, I meet a lot of people in central Wellington who un understand a lot about people's plights, but have very little to do with those people. I think Jesus goes a step further. Not sympathy, not empathy, but compassion. And compassion literally means to suffer with. See, sympathy and empathy can stay clean, we can stay clean. Even at the moment, if you want to get on the empathy bandwagon, you can actually increase your social capital with empathy. You can put that, you can put that on Facebook. That will get you some cred. But compassion means radically realigning your life alongside those who are grubby, filthy, and unclean who no one else wants to hang out with and allowing them to turn your life upside down and being willing to suffer through the same things. So Jesus doesn't just think about how sad it is that people suffer. He doesn't just learn information about their struggle, but he suffers too. Our clean God becomes unclean. Our clean God becomes unclean. And I think that's what we're called to, not vain sympathy, not overeducated empathy, but radically unclean compassion. So correction number one from Mark 5, to follow God is not to become perfect. It is to have our lives healed and transformed by perfect love. But number two, to follow Jesus is not to stay clean. It is a call to a life of grubby compassion. To follow Jesus is not to stay clean. It is a call to a life of grubby compassion. If you want to follow Jesus, get ready to get messy. 
I love that word grubby because it just reminds me immediately of my mum telling me off. You know, oh, you're so grubby. <laughs> Clean your hands, blow your nose. Um, but yeah, we are called to a life of grubby compassion. Final part of this um, scripture. Despite the, the connections in this passage we have between Jairus' daughter and the bleeding woman, they don't actually have a heap in common, really. Jairus is wildly powerful. Like, he is a top religious leader. He is of high esteem in his community. She is completely powerless and reviled. Jairus is well, is well known. He gets a name in this passage. She gets no name. We don't know who she is. Jairus has a big house. She's lost all her money on doctors who couldn't help her. One of them's rich, one of them's poor, one of them's powerful, one's powerless, and yet somehow they both get what they ask for. Jairus' daughter is healed, and so is the bleeding woman. There are similarities, yeah. So if we're looking for an ethic of who Jesus heals, we might find this passage like a little bit unhelpful. Because if we want to say Jesus cares mostly about marginalized women, then the healing he does for the powerful man's daughter kind of doesn't work. And if we want to say Jesus cares mostly about super religious folks who have their shit together, then the bleeding woman doesn't really help our cause there either. Um, churches like ours can try really hard to make Jesus a green voter. <laughs> and man, I really want him to be, eh? <laughs> like I so want Jesus and Chloe to just hang out and have lattes and like run gallery openings together. <laughs> but I don't think he is, eh? I don't think he is. For God to be God, he must be bigger than our political and ideological categories. For God to be God, he must be bigger than our political and ideological categories. I remember a few years ago, I had a friend who came to faith, um, and um, he uh, was part of the hardcore scene, um, and um, those of you don't, it's like punk, it's, it's loud. Um, but <laughs> um, he was part of the hardcore scene, and uh, he came to faith, and at the same time, he decided to do this thing, which a lot of the hardcore Christian kids did, which was to become straight edge. Um, and um, straight edge was basically you got a tattoo of three big X's on your arm or leg, and you rejected alcohol, and you rejected drugs, and you rejected sleeping around. And it was kind of like a nice way to kind of like not have to say I'm doing all of that because I'm actually a Christian. Um, but like, um, that, you know, he took on this thing of I'm straight edge, and so I don't do this stuff. Um, and I, see, and I challenged him on it one day, and I said to him, um, I said, you know, there's this really crazy passage in Acts where Peter is sitting on a roof, and suddenly four to 6,000 years of Jewish cultural heritage is broken when a sheet full of animals comes down and God says, eat whatever you want. And then later in that book, we'll, we'll see Paul, who discovers that this people who have been needed to be circumcised for 6,000 years no longer are either. These massive cultural upheavals. And I said to him, I said, you know, I said, it's great that you're not drinking. It's great you're not doing drugs. It's great that you're not sleeping around. But this stuff could change one day. And then this phrase flew back at me. He said, if I'm not straight edge, I'm not Christian. And about two or three years later, he wasn't straight edge and he wasn't Christian. See, his following Jesus got captivated by another belief system. His following Jesus got captured by another ideology. The work of Jesus has to transcend our categories. Jesus responds to the desperate cries of the poor. He wants gender equality. He wants racial justice. But Jesus is not captive to our political ideologies. 
Those things of justice and freedom belonged to Jesus before they belonged to the left or the right. We need to remember that Jesus hears both the cry of the powerful synagogue leader and the powerless woman on the street. And if your Jesus has started to look a little too much like John Key or a little too much like Jacinda, it might be that you're following a political ideology rather than the risen Lord. It's a good question for us to ask ourselves in central Wellington. Really good question for us to ask ourselves. So then we might ask, if it's neither poverty nor piety that moves Jesus' heart, if he's actually for all his children, then what is it? And I think there's a clue in the actions of both Jairus and the bleeding woman. Verse 22. When he saw Jesus, Jairus fell at his feet. Verse 33. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at Jesus' feet. It's humility that moves the heart of Christ. It's humility that moves the heart of Christ, whether rich or poor, powerful or powerless. It is those who fall at the feet of Jesus that encounter the mercy of God. And so a final correction here. Following Jesus is not about right belief. It's about having a heart that will fall at his feet. Following Jesus is not about right belief. It is about having a heart that will fall at his feet. So those three things again. Number one, to follow God is not to become perfect. It is to have our lives healed and transformed by perfect love. Number two, to follow Jesus is not to stay clean. It is a call to a life of grubby compassion. And number three, to follow Jesus is not about right belief. It is about having a heart that will fall at his feet. So I want to invite us um, to respond in a few ways. Um, And um, what I'm going to do is read out some invitations um, that you can respond to. And what I think we'll do is we'll all close our eyes in a moment. Um, And it may be there's three invitations here alongside those corrections. And it may be that you want to stand for one of them or none of them or all of them. And that's up to you. Um, But with our eyes closed, I'm going to invite people to stand for each of these. um, And we're going to invite Christ to come and minister into our hearts um, as we do that. Jess, do you want to jump up here? So why don't you just close your eyes and just still yourself for a moment. Holy Spirit, come. God, we so want to be yours. Um, We want to be yours in the church and we want to be yours on the street. God, we want to know your love for us. If any of you want to open your hands, um, that's one way of saying to to God that um, we want to receive what he has to give us. And so I'm going to read some invitations and with our eyes still closed, um, I'll just invite people to stand at the end of each one and then we'll, we'll bless you. The first invitation is I think there are some people here who've got hung up on perfection. And you're being super hard on yourselves and you need to look upon perfect love afresh. So some of you got hung up on perfection. You're, you're being real hard on yourselves and you need to look upon perfect love afresh. So with eyes closed, if you want to respond to that, I just invite you to stand now.
Jesus, we just yeah, thank you for um, this response to your invitation. Lord, I pray that your yoke would be easy, your burden would be light for these people. Lord, I pray that your perfect love would come now and cast out all fear. Lord, I pray for um, people here who are living under this heavy yoke of, of, of feeling they need to achieve righteousness or perfection. Lord, I pray you would break that in the name of Jesus. And I just pray that your, your beautiful grace would just wash over every person here. Now you're welcome to stay standing, um, and I'll read another invitation, and you can either people can join them to stand, or or people can sit if you need if you want to. Um, some of you realize that you've tried to do the way of Jesus from a distance. You've tried to stay clean, and Jesus is um, giving you this terrifying invitation: follow me to the broken places, follow me in radically unclean compassion. Um, so for those of you who just want to be blessed to walk in the courageous way of grubby compassion, I just invite you to stand. Jesus, I just bless these people. Bless these brave people. Bless their courage, Lord. And God, I pray um, that you would be their comforter and their counsellor on the days where it all feels like a mess and they wish it was clean again. God, I pray your, um, yeah, your, your supernatural enabling um, for them to be people um, not of sympathy, not just of empathy, but of deep suffering compassion for your children who desperately need to know you. I just see um, Jesus handing out um, to some of those people who've just stood like tiny baby spoons. And it's like um, he wants to like, like this is like being born again again. <laughs> um, and he, um, he is just going to need to feed you like children in this way. You're just going to have to be dependent on him for every like ounce of nutrition for this journey. Um, so it's a real humble place you need to come to. So, Lord, yeah, I just bless these people to be up for being spoon-fed by you, Jesus. And then this final invitation. Um, some of you have got stuck in an ideology, um, and, and you need to confess that, and you need to put Jesus above your ideology again. You need to fall at his feet and rename him as Lord. So if that's you, I just invite you to stand. Jesus, we just declare that you are Lord, and Caesar is not. You are Lord, Jesus. And so we serve you before any other power. And so, Lord, I pray that you would break off any power or principality um, that we have pledged our allegiance to here. God, um, yeah, I pray for, particularly I just feel there are people here who have a fear of rejection or a fear of losing reputation over this. Um, and I just pray courage, Lord Jesus, for those people um, who are worried about being pushed to the outer um, because they will not pledge allegiance to an ideology. 
Um, So Lord, we just say you are king. You are king above all else. You are the one who leads us. Um, And Lord, we want to follow your justice and your compassion before anybody else's. And so I just um, want to invite everyone to stand as we um, sing um, and as we worship together.